Welcome to episode 271 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. I last interviewed American economist Phil Verlager about eight months ago. That seems like a lifetime ago, at least in the automotive industry. 2023 was the coming out party for China's EV makers. BYD overtook Tesla to become the world's biggest EV manufacturer. Europe opened a trade offensive against cheap Chinese EV imports. And OEMs were quietly, and sometimes not so quietly, musing about which of them would fail to meet the ferocious competition from China. Not surprisingly, Phil has his own interesting take. He wondered if the availability of an alternative to gasoline in the form of electricity would change the way U.S. consumers responded to price fluctuations. He crunched some California data and concluded that it would. Now he's here to talk about that analysis. So welcome to Energy Talks, Phil. Well, thank you very much. Good to be back. Well, it's good to have you back. I, I always, I mean, you're a veteran of this. You've been a, you've been around the block, and we should. We pointed this out in episode. I was one sixty one or one sixty three when I last talked to you. But I mean, you worked as an an oil economist in the in the Ford administration, in the Carter administration. You've seen. Uh, you were there for the formation of OPEC back in the day. You've seen a few things. Well, now. I, it, Thank you very much. Uh, I've seen a lot. Now, I didn't see the formation of OPEC. That happened around 1962 or 63 uh, when I was in just a freshman or sophomore in college. Uh, but I saw the Arab embargo, and I'm an economist now. I got stuck following energy in 71, 72. And I, and I was told, oh, that would be three or four years, then you can go do something else. Well, something else has never happened. <laughs> it's... I've been stuck with it, uh, but one of you know one of the things that I did from the very beginning was look at the role of price uh, in the early seventies. If you talk to somebody and say, "Well, the prices go up," the answer everybody would say, "Well, there's going to be no change in consumption. Everybody has to have uh, uh, gasoline, has to have electricity. Th there is no price effect," and so. Uh, professor at Harvard, uh, Henry Kautacher, and I, and a, a good a, a research assistant who went on to become a very good professor, Dennis Sheehan, did a study. And we took the data from 1960 to 1972 or 73, I think, uh, from the Federal Highway Administration and from uh, Platts, which is now part of S&P, which had retail prices of gasoline by state by month. And we essentially crunched the data. and we found that in the 60s and the early 70s, the price elasticity was uh, small, but there, so that if you had a 100% increase in prices, you'd see 7% or 8% decline in consumption in the first uh, couple of months, and the, the decline would get increase over time. Uh, now, that was one of the fir very first studies, and if you Google the issue, price elasticity of gasoline, now you find there are like, 9,000 or 10,000 studies. I mean, it, it, it became a, uh, a good enterprise for, for uh, young professors trying to get tenure at college. Uh, they get articles out on this. The interesting thing is that the short-run price elasticities haven't changed much. And uh, this last week, I just started crunching numbers again and looking 
uh, nationwide, the change in gasoline prices and the change in consumption. And same price elasticity comes out in the short run. But I also was looking at California. Uh, now, I'm originally from California. California leads the U.S. in uh, EV adoption. And California has, uh, and, and the United States and California has really good data. And so the question, what I was trying to figure out is how did, do we see something different in California? You know, my first thing is to look at a fuel economy. And the DOE publishes some data on fuel economy, but they're not very good. Uh, you know, the best information you get is by taking gasoline sales as reported by tax authorities, because uh, in the United States and in Canada, the tax authorities get really good information. There's a long lag, but People have every everybody selling gasoline has to report how much they sell, and if they don't, uh, they're violating the law and they can go to jail. Um, so these data give you really good measures of how much is consumed, and what you find is nationwide the fuel economy hasn't changed much uh, over since COVID, and it hadn't changed much before COVID. I mean, it, it, you know, people, some of the numbers that uh, the Department of Energy comes up with show a different number, but on a national basis, there's no trend. What you see in California, which has has had much higher gasoline prices, is that fuel economy went up. And the obvious explanation for this is California, which has where almost 3% of the vehicle registrations are EV. Californians have a choice between their gasoline-powered car and their uh, electric vehicle. And as gasoline prices go up, they use their electric vehicle more and their gasoline power vehicle less. Uh, now, nobody should be surprised. This is, you know, consumers are rational and they try to uh, to maximize what they can get out of their budget. And they have an EV. That's what they do. For the non-economists in the audience, and uh, surprisingly, there will be a, quite a number of economists, actually, that they make up part of our, our regular audience. But maybe you should just give us a quick refresher on price elasticity, Phil, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Price elasticity is measures the change in consumption of a commodity for a change in price. So that if you and it's it, 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 when you estimate it, it's negative. It should be negative because as prices go up, consumption goes down. We know that uh, you know you, you, if Starbucks raises the price of coffee, people will buy a few less cups of coffee a month. And so, if uh, the, the price elasticities can range from very small numbers like minus 0.01 or 0.02, which would mean that. Uh, Consumption doesn't change much with higher prices. I think price elasticity can be minus two, and which means that uh, there's a huge change in consumption uh, for a small change in price. And it depends on where you are. Now, I wrote a PhD thesis in the 60, end of the 60s, early 70s, finished in 70, on demand for air transportation. And we, I was looking at different route lengths and what you the key thing you found was that on short trips the price elasticity was low well that was because most are businessmen and they don't you know they're not sensitive to prices long trips price elasticity is price elasticity is high because that you have a lot of people traveling for pleasure and so if you raise prices uh pleasure traveler 
cut their tri trips down. And this is something we know. We, we read the articles all the time uh, about how uh, air travel has gone down because air prices, have, uh, because the ticket prices have gone up, especially when fuel prices go up. So the price elasticity tells you, you know, kind of how what percentage change in consumption you observe for a change in price. And for gasoline, as I say, uh, in a short run, if you double the price of gasoline, you get just maybe five, six, seven percent reduction in consumption, unless the consumer has an alternative, such as an electric vehicle, then maybe if prices go up 100%, you get 15 or 20% reduction in gasoline consumption. We should point out that in the 125, 150-year uh, history of the internal combustion engine, uh, gasoline has never had a, co a competitor. That's right. That and, was, and it does now. And now there, now you have the electric vehicle. And so you also found, so the other part of this, this research is looking at sales of electric vehicles. And there have been, the Wall Street Journal did a long article on how sales of electric vehicles are down. There have been other articles in other countries that sales of electric vehicles are down. Part of this research that I've just finished over this last week, I looked at the market share of electric vehicle sales versus the price of gasoline. And guess what? Uh, when gasoline prices went up in 2022, the market share of EV sales went up. Consumers saw, saw high gasoline prices that, oh, in their cost considerations, electric vehicles now made more sense, even if the price was higher. Gasoline prices have come down. What has happened? EV sales have come down. I mean, it's, it's you know, again, uh, you know, the, my mantra is markets matter. Prices matter. But we should point out, it's not that EV sales came down, it's the rate of growth slowed from the previous year. That is true. But I mean, what is the key question is market share. And so GM, Ford, Stellantis, even Tesla are looking at how their market shares go. The market, the, and they would have come down much more, but for the fact that the EV manufacturers started cutting prices. I mean, we started seeing price cuts in China with BYD we, uh, and Tesla followed. Then in the United States, we've seen price cuts here, even though BYD doesn't sell cars in the United States and probably will never sell cars in the United States. How do you account for region-centric uh, issues? And uh, specifically in the U.S., uh, the U.S. manufacturers have done what they always do, which is they start with the premium vehicles. They bring out new technologies. They go in the premium vehicles. And then as they scale up and bring the cost of those new technologies down, then they filter down through the, the chain into the, the mid-range and then into the low range of vehicles. And the Chinese have not done that. The, the Chinese have, right from the very beginning, uh, they targeted uh, the low range and the mid range. And I just had um, uh, a guest on a few episodes ago. We were talking about the Chinese uh, EV industry, and he was talking about the biggest increase in sales by far in China is the mid range, the $24,000 to $30,000 in US dollars, which we would almost think of as the low range in North America. But anyway, that was, and, and then there's another issue in the United States, which is public charging infrastructure. 
the U.S. has not kept up to the EU and China in investing in, in uh, public chargers. And now we're beginning to see complaints from people who buy EVs and then the chargers are broken or they, they haven't got enough in a particular in a particular region. So it seems like, is it just price or are there some other issues coming into play? Well, no, there are clearly other issues. And you're right now, the reason I emphasize the price of gasoline is that uh, nobody has been, nobody's bothered to notice that the EV sales changed and the market share changed as the price of gasoline changed. And, and so I wanted to bring the price of gasoline in. Uh, you're right. One of the reasons why California has been so successful is the charging structure in California is much better than the charging structure almost any place else. Charging structure is also very good here in Denver. Uh, we see a lot of EV cars here in Denver. And it, which, what I think we're seeing is a choice in the United States, even as, and we'll see more of this as lower price EV, EVs come out. People will use their EVs in the city and so on. Uh, because they don't have to go and, and spend a half an hour charging their car going long distances. Uh, there was a great Bloomberg article in December on what they call hyperdrive, uh, where two Bloomberg reporters took uh, a medium-sized Chinese car and drove from uh, uh, Shanghai to Wuhan. And they pointed out that when they left, they, uh, they said they'd be arrived by 5 p.m., well, they got there at 2 a.m. And the reason they got there at 2 a.m. is that they had to stop and charge two or three times. They did some interviews too. But EVs, you know, the hang up on EVs and the, the block to them is that you can't, it's much more difficult or it, it makes a long trip if you have to recharge much longer because of the, the charging times, even if you find the good charging stations. So, what we're going to see is the penetration of EVs in the cities. And, you know, what puzzles me is that we, that everybody's aimed at automobiles. When, if I were doing, had been doing it, I would have aimed at delivery vehicles. I would have aimed to try to capture UPS, uh, FedEx, and the other people that go around, but they haven't. I actually can speak to that because I've interviewed uh, a number of experts about the medium duty uh, EVs. And <clears throat> there are lots of them in, in uh, Europe and there are way more of them in China. China is uh, far ahead of us on that. But in terms of North America, uh, Amazon ordered 100,000 electric uh, vans. So Amazon is, is clearly changing. The, the, the point that the experts have made is that medium duty delivery vans uh, 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 well suited to uh, electric uh, propulsion systems. So you might only go a couple hundred kilometers a day. So you know what your route is, you know how many uh, kilometers or miles are, uh, your vehicle is going to travel. It's very predictable. You can bring them back to a central location where you can have all the charging infrastructure that you, you need. And it makes it a lot, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a lot more attractive for fleet managers to be able to do that. And so uh, the expectation is that you'll see delivery vans, a big uh, boom in, in electric uh, delivery vans here in the next uh, few years. I agree. And the, my, my fundamental question is why Ford and others 
emphasize cars and trucks first rather than delivery vans because it seems to me that that would have been uh, a much faster market penetration. And, and I, 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 you know, it, it's I appreciate what you said, I, and it's just curious to me that we didn't see it because uh, it seemed to me it's, it looks like it's, it was an opportunity missed. But that you know, it, it, it may be that the battery size, uh, you know, there there must have been something there, and, and I haven't found I haven't found. It. Well, I I have another theory about that, and that is the uh, tendency of incumbents to downplay competition. And Ford and GM have never really had, I mean, they compete against each other in the marketplace, but as we said earlier, there's never been a competition from another uh, fuel, uh, and now there is. And I see this uh, most acutely in Alberta with the Canadian, the big Canadian oil companies. The fantasies that they entertain, that they hold about where oil markets are going in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, astonish me. And I think to myself, you know, those CEOs, those executives know the oil industry, particularly the North American oil industry, really well, because that's their entire career has been spent in it. They spend time in Houston. They, they own refineries in places like Colorado. I mean, they know it really well. They have, but incumbents are always taken by surprise by the competition. And these guys do not know the competition. And I suspect that Ford and GM did not know the competition either. And they were a bit taken by surprise and then they had to play catch up. That, that's my hypothesis. Well, I, I think you're right to a certain extent. Now, I, I've written a lot about legacy firms. The American Energy Society, uh, for some reason, gave me an award as Energy Writer of the Year last year. And I have an article. As Congratulations, published. by the way. Thank you. And so the international economy has put up a, a forthcoming article on the website. I'll send it to you after all, uh, talking about how in terms of dealing with energy disruptions, and this goes back to my history in 1971, that looking forward from what's happened in, in with the uh, Hamas uh, attack on is on Israel and and the war in, the, in Gaza, uh, that energy policy people can't make the same mistake they made 50 years ago, which was uh, following the Arab embargo to em empower the legacy firms, the oil companies, just to just keep producing oil. What we need to do is accelerate the move off oil. And you're absolutely right. The legacy oil companies don't have a clue as to what's coming or what could be coming soon, uh, unless oil prices stay down. I mean, the price, again, price matters. Uh, the auto company, I think the difference with what, I'm, I'm not going to fault GM and Ford as much as you do, or Stellantis, because they were competing with this company called Tesla. And Tesla's market cap was literally a hundred times what theirs was, and so the, and so they were looking at the prime, really profitable things they make, the high-end automobiles, Mercedes, Volkswagen, same thing, being that whole market being captured by Tesla, and so they responded to that competition, and they because Tesla started there with uh, the high-end cars rather than starting with delivery vans. And I, so, I mean, it's, you know, because the auto industry 
has welcomed this. I mean, I, I mean, if you were a GM person that had been there a long time and you'd seen it gone through bankruptcy and seen your, uh, your pension fund almost wiped out uh, by the oil industry, you would be working hard to find some way to get away from oil. And, but their profits come from the SUVs, their profits come from the uh, high-end cars. And so that's, that's where they went because that's where Tesla went. An interesting observation about that comes from Sam Abul Samid, who's a frequent guest on my on my interviews, and he works. He used to, he's an automotive engineer. Started his his career in Detroit as a software engineer for automotive uh, on the automotive side, and now is a researcher and pundit for Guidehouse Research. And his point was that uh, OEMs have been doing. Uh, I think he calls it power electronics, like the the software that runs fuel injection and runs your you know the, your internal combustion engine car. Been doing that for fifty years. They they know that stuff really well. What they don't know is all the other software that the Teslas and the BYDs were really good at, and and that has delayed some of their the development. I mean, look at VW. You know their software, uh, their software department got the CEO fired a few years ago because uh, it was such a disaster and they seem to have straightened it out now, but you know, that delays their, their introduction of new models and their expansion of production by, you know, a year or two or three, which in today's market is like a lifetime. Well, that's a, that, that's clearly true. And, uh, and, you know, I, I, I need to look up and read what Sam said, but I mean, the, because the auto industry used to have, something like a 10 year planning cycle. And now, and now they have to condense that down to two or three, but it, and you know, as one of my friends said from the council of economic advisors uh, in the early seventies, uh, there were essentially four auto suppliers in the United States or Canada. They were Chrysler, Ford, GM, and Volkswagen. And that was it. Mercedes had a tiny share of the market uh, and a couple of other companies. Uh, Toyota came over, they came over, they, sold some cars in California. Uh, my uncle bought one. Uh, they didn't work very well. Toyota bought it back and they went back and they took apart the Mercedes and figured out how to make them and then started making those. It, you're absolutely right. My, but I, I think if you, since I've been looking at transitions, you know, uh, uh, it's, and not energy transitions, other transitions. I mean, you know, uh, one of them is uh, an oddball one you know, going from cloth diapers to pampers. Why did it take so long for cloth diapers to get displaced? Answer was price. Um, and uh, the, you know, we see this in many cases, but it's, you know, if you look at this, it's the question is, what was the instigation to start the thing? Mobile phones, they started, you had flip phones and so on. They came, they were coming along, they were taking market share away from the AT&Ts and so on. And it started around 1970, 71. It, and it, but it was really slow until Steve Jobs came in and he came up with the iPhone, which has a camera and everything else. And suddenly it took off. It's so, so transitions are what I'll call path specific. That is who started it and how they started it. If they started with, if Tesla had come out with lots of electric vans and they were really good and FedEx and everybody had jumped at them, uh, what would happen? What would have happened is you would have seen Ford and, uh, and GM and so on going that way and gasoline consumption would have been down. I mean, yeah, this is kind of, it, it, it's why you can't write down economic stories 
starting with mathematics and saying, this is just where it's going. You have to start with a human being and figure out how the society's changed. Okay, speaking of that, the reason I invited you back to the podcast initially um, was to talk about a I think it was a Reuters story I sent you, uh, in which it's uh, it argued that the super majors, uh, also all the big oil companies, are beginning to acquire uh, oil fields that can be produced for thirty dollars a barrel. And just for comparison's sake,s we have a lot of Canadian listeners. The oil sands has become fairly competitive. Uh, and its break-evens in uh, American dollars at WTI price are uh, low 30s to $45. Mm -hmm. So this would be significantly uh, lower than some of the production at, in the oil sands. And the argument is that they're, they're doing it because of all the uncertainty in the transition and in, in oil markets. And they have to prepare themselves that the spread of electric vehicles will erode uh, road transportation demand for oil quicker than they expect. And if you look at Bloomberg NEF's projections, uh, it's a pretty steep curve as it is. So everybody's kind of, you know, you know, in the midst of this uncertainty, the oil companies are preparing to compete for that last barrel. And, they, and they're doing it by targeting these, these uh, fields that can be produced economically. As an oil economist, what's your take on that? Let me come at this from a uh, finance point of view, not economics. Uh, for years, economists have been preaching about real options. That is, if you have an investment opportunity as a company, it's an option. And, and when you start building, you quote, killed the option and you're going ahead. Uh, what the oil industry is looking at now, I think, the smart companies, are the uncertainty as to whether demand is going to be there or not. The OPEC has its forecasts. The uh, executives in Calgary no doubt have their forecasts. They see oil being around for a long time. The IEA says it's going to go down. There's a huge dispute about this is whether what the IEA's forecast. But, you know, as I've looked at these things, what you discover is that Almost all long-term forecasts are wrong. For example, uh, 15 years ago, uh, the U.S. government projected that we would be importing about a third of our natural gas in the United States in 2024. Instead, we're exporting a third of our natural gas production. Okay, they didn't understand fracking. What the companies are doing is looking at short cycle, that is, projects that can be started and finished quickly. Uh, and that's a real option. So that they're going into this, and if it turns out demand goes down and prices fall, they're not stuck with these huge fields that have to produce 50 years or 30 years to pay out. And short cycle investments, we're seeing a lot more in the oil business. We're seeing it in the computer business. We're seeing it in the technology business because everything changes so quickly. So the what the Reuters article po pointed out, what others have pointed out, is that you don't want to get yourself in a business where you're making an investment now and it takes 15 or 20 years to pay out. Saudi Arabia just announced it was cutting its investment in uh, in exploration and production. A couple of reasons: one, they they don't have the money, but the second reason is 
they are they are looking at the same kind of economics, the the uh, the real options. They don't know where demand is going to be in twenty four. Okay, speaking of the Saudis, they produce oil for about five dollars a barrel, and there are some other Middle Eastern producers that have very low uh, production costs. And the argument has been around for a while now that the as the the transition accelerates, as we either get close to peak demand for for oil, or we we hit peak demand and then we have a steep decline curve, at some point the Saudis and others are going to make the calculation. They're going to say. It no longer pays for us to withhold 3 million barrels a day of production from the market. Our, our, our economics are maximized. Our returns are maximized when we flood the market, drive prices down, drive the high cost producers out of the market. And then we take that market share and we, and we, we, uh, we defend it, we maintain it. And that gives us the highest uh, return on our capital, on our resource, on a, what is a, a, a you know diminishing demand for that resource, you know, given your what what do you make of that argument? It's an argument that was made, has been made for a long time. Uh, Maury Edelman, one of my teachers, you know, pointed this out uh, in the seventies. Uh, it doesn't work anymore. The Saudis have this huge investment program then you know they have this Davos in the desert all these big finances come over there uh if you look at the flow of foreign direct investment into saudi arabia foreign money coming in it's not there i mean they uh, the, people go to the party but they don't they're not paying very much and the saudis need the higher they need kind of a steady uh, level of income they'd like a hundred dollar oil uh if you know, if they were to go do the price war and have drive prices down, they're not, A, you know, they they run in the risk that uh, the United States could impose and Canada could take me measures to prevent them from driving the U.S. people out of business. Uh, and the other thing is the recover, with the, as prices recover, they found that, gee, the production comes right back. So you look at, you know, the production, U.S. production went down dramatically when the Saudis started a price war. It's higher now than it was then. And so what happens is the oil is still there and it, and the people who find the oil are still there. So price goes down, production goes down, price comes back. The U.S. is here again. Meantime, uh, you know, European countries and China and so on would take measures to protect the uh electric vehicles and the other sectors and moving off. So it's, uh, I think they, they've discovered, and I think they're right, that going to a low price scenario is not, doesn't help them. Um, you mentioned the, how, what the uh, OPEC thinks about the future of oil and their, their uh, world oil outlook uh, 2020, 2045 came out late last year. And that their narrative is, that you know we'll see growth from of 100 from where we are now at about 102 103 million barrels a day to 116 million barrels a day by 2045 and then we'll have a long plateau and then a gentle decline so it's a very optimistic view uh, of oil's future but they don't act like that i mean they're busy they're busy installing solar in the desert as fast as they can install it they're they're installing 
uh, green hydrogen electrolyzers. They're even trying to build an EV industry in Saudi Arabia. They're trying to take that public investment fund, their sovereign wealth fund, and use every, squeeze every bit of value out of it to get into clean energy. And so what is this? Is this a rational uh, response by an incumbent to, you know, to, uh, to technological change, to transition? Or I, I can't help but think that it's a bit of a clever uh, narrative manipulation by, by the Saudis and by OPEC because they, they completely hooked the Alberta government and the Alberta oil company CEOs who bought their narrative hook, line, and sinker and are behaving that way, while the Saudis talk the talk, the talk but don't walk the walk. I, what's your take? Let's separate OPEC from uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, because while there are a number of Saudis at OPEC, I don't think the, the Saudis really have much have that much say in the forecasts. Uh, uh, the Saudis, you know, they're using their leverage and their people and OPEC to try to get other countries to cut production to hold prices up. Uh, Saudi Arabia is being clever and smart in two ways. One, uh, by going to solar, they free up their crude production. I mean, because OPEC agrees on crude production levels, not on export levels. The Saudis produce uh, uh, more solar power. They have more oil to export. I, 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 one of the little details that people have missed is that Russia couldn't export, couldn't find markets for its heavy fuel oil uh, due to the Ukrainian inv inv uh, invasion. Saudi Arabia bought it. They've been buying the Soviet heavy crude fuel oil so they can export more more of their own production and say and say they're complying. Uh, it's yeah, they're very clever. Uh, the now the the difference between having taught at the University of Calgary uh, and then in the Middle East a little, not much. The difference between Calgary and uh, the Middle East is the sun shines most of the time in, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, at places up in Alberta, solar power doesn't pay because in the wintertime, the sun is around, the sun is too far down in the horizon, given its position in, uh, towards the North Pole. And, uh, you know, the sun doesn't shine. So, I mean, the Saudis have the advantage of the sun. Take advantage of it. Uh, the uh, uh, green hydrogen, you know, if you have all this desert space and so on, and you can cover it with solar panels, hey, you can make a lot of green hydrogen for a lot less than anybody else can. So, again, I'll go back to the kind of talking about uh, uh, the way a finance professor would talk. They're diversifying their economy so that it, even if oil goes away, they have uh, they have the green hydrogen to export. They have the electric power. They have cheap electric power, and they're better off in Europe. Well, I'll push back just a tiny bit, Phil, because um, I've seen the charts, and Southern Alberta has the best solar resources in all of Canada. It's very competitive with uh, parts of the U.S. Don't know about the Middle East. And uh, it was 2018 that the Alberta government had a uh, renewables uh, auction and the winning bid was 3.7 cents a kilowatt hour. And so they, they make, they actually can do wind and solar quite at quite a low cost uh, in Alberta, perhaps a little higher in the, in the, you know, in the winter, I'll grant you that. 
but as a rule, they have a very they have very good renewables resources there. So I will I will apologize then because I haven't been to Alberta since 2012 when I left the university. Uh, you know, because I, you know, the the people the oil people in Alberta did not like some of the messages I was uh, I I had. That's fine. Uh, oh, oh, hang on a second, hang on a second. I, I oh, please, I have to interrupt here now because. The I we I have a kind of an ongoing battle with the what I call the oil bros in Alberta. Some of them are CEOs and VPs. I get the weirdest drunken emails, Phil, from from people in the I get you know chairmen's of the board and you know those those kind of people and and so I, I'm always we're having this we have it in social media and and other places and I main I, I'm really curious about your insights into the oil leadership, the, the oil and gas leadership in, in Alberta and anything that you might tell us that's kind of germane to the conversation we're having. First place, I'm way out of date because I, you know, uh, we happily parted company. Uh, uh, I, I will say that I, I, I got into some, I made some people very unhappy, particularly TransCanada, now TC, because uh, I was working with the NRDC and uh, there was this, uh, the, T, uh, uh, oh, the, the pipeline, uh, the escapes from the name that, that got killed by President Obama. Uh, uh, Keystone XL. Keystone XL. Uh, one, of the, one of the key reasons, the, the hearings that the Energy Board had, one of the key things that came out was that the, uh, the pipeline was designed to bypass Chicago because Chicago had traditionally had higher crude prices than uh, Houston because pipe, crude had to be piped up from from the Gulf of Mexico to Chicago. Now they were getting cheaper crude, and and right now gasoline prices are much lower in the in Midwest thanks to the Canadian crude rate, which has to go down. Uh, Keystone XL would have solved that problem, and you know I. I, I just looked at the numbers and wrote a piece and uh, it got circulated among the, all the upper state people in Iowa. And, and uh, so what you wound up with is like a Senator Grassley, who is very conservative, very free market and everything like that in Iowa, very Republican, very opposed to Keystone XL and a number of other Republicans, uh, because they said, oh, it's going to raise the farmer's cost of fuel and everything else. And that stalled the Keystone XL for three or four years. So, uh, uh, yeah, and, and that made me very unpopular. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, and, I and, can only imagine. Did, did you get banned from the Petroleum Club? That seems to be a, a I thing. Get, I, I, I wasn't going to the Petroleum Club anyway. Uh, so <laughs> it was, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it is, I don't know about the Alberta oil executives. I do know, you know, I know in general, the oil executives are really great engineers, and when you teach, if they take your oh, amazing, course, yes. If you take if they take a, a business course or something, and I teach it, uh, they get microeconomics really quickly because it's all maximization. This is again this this mathematics thing. Uh, what they don't get is kind of the more general economic view of what stops or starts transitions, or what stops or starts economic development. I mean. You know, they miss how, why, say, Franklin Delano, Delano Roosevelt was so popular. And that was because he did all these things, Social Security and so on, 
uh, which, which, uh, if you look at pure microeconomics, yeah, it's it, it's a mistake. Uh, but yeah, it's political economics. I I couldn't agree with you more. No, I spent five years in the oil patch, and I met with engineers every day, all day in West Texas, in Midland, Odessa, in Colorado, uh, in uh, Bakersfield, and Signal Hill in California, all, all over, and in the, of course in Calgary and, and in Estevan and Saskatchewan, all over the place. And the one thing I can tell you, uh, amongst many, I guess, now that I think about it, is that uh, petroleum engineers are some of the most innovative people you will ever find and the smartest people you ever find inside the box. Like if you've got a problem with a, a well producing, you know, it's got a hole in the tubing or something, they will engineer a solution. They're just nothing short of amazing. You remind me of the old farmers with the bubble gum and baling twine and, you know, but, but they're really good. But if you get outside of that box and or arguably the energy transition and the electricity is outside their box and they're not very good at it. That's and this is the same thing in the electric sector. I mean, you look at the problem now. Recently, you know, the, we've been talking about the problem. You know, the electricity. You can generate electricity with solar or with wind at a much lower cost than you can generate it with natural gas. Problem is building the transmission lines, and and so it takes eight, ten, fifteen years to certify all these transmission lines. We need to get over that hump. Well, meantime, now some of the engineers are coming up with new solutions. They figured out new capacitors and so on to double, triple, and quadruple the power of uh, uh, the amount of power that can be moved on grids. It, it, you know, it's the uh, the uh, one of the editors of the Financial Times, Jillian Tepp, his friend, has written a great book. She's an anthropologist called the Silo Effect, and essentially everybody. In each, all these businesses are stuck in their silos, and and they're really good. I mean, it's uh, you know, I started when I was writing my uh, my thesis on the demand for air transportation. Everybody was looking at the supersonic transport, and they said it was going to go great guns, uh, uh, because of the value of time. And you go and you meet the engineers that were designing it and thinking about it. They were fantastic. What they missed was that the supersonic transit uh, trans uh, supersonic plane, Concorde, and so on worked well going from east to west so that people could get on the plane in New York, in London in the morning, get to New York and have a full day. And they were willing to pay a huge premium for that. They weren't willing to pay a huge premium to fly back because if they got on the plane at six o'clock at night, they landed in London at midnight or something like that. And it wasn't the same safe. So the economics didn't work. Higher fuel prices made the, the problem worse. Uh, you couldn't fly over uh, land supersonically whole series of problems. So it was, it was one of those transitions that didn't make it. And it's, you know, so you, but the guys, people, and it was all men who, who were designing that were really brilliant. Uh, same thing, oil drilling, I, in Signal Hill, I, I, I grew up in the oil business in Southern California. My father was a lawyer there. And so, I mean, you, you know, or refining or, you know, it's, or battery design, or you, know, you just go around. The trouble is that there are very not very many people who kind of span this and look across the, the, the thing, and, that, and that's where you get your great CEOs. The oil industry has not done very well. And you can see that too in a company like IBM. The people who were running it were great at 
building and selling mainframes, but it took an entirely different type of CEO to move that company from selling mainframes to PCs and so on. It's I want to put in a plug here for the type of uh, journalism that I do, Phil, and, and you can tell me whether I'm and and don't spare my feelings. If you you know you could you can be tough on me. Uh, my point here is that I'm I was trained as a historian, so you know the broad sweep of history, the Arnold the uh, Arnold uh, Toynbee uh, approach to you know history. And so when I do energy journalism, I sometimes I tend I can dive into a topic and and really fall down the rabbit hole. But for the most part, I'm interviewing people from all over the world about about oil and gas and electricity and electric vehicles and on and on and on. And but at, I'm kind of a, a ten miles wide and an inch thick, you know, to use that old old uh, metaphor. And but the advantage is as a journalist is I can connect dots. And so when I'm looking at modeling, I re read a lot of modeling. You know, the, I read OPEC, I read IEA, I read Rocky Mountain Institute and Bloomberg NEF. And then I can look at the research that I've done or the interviews that I've had, and I can say, which one of those modeling exercises best reflects the, the evidence as I've gathered it? And that's a very useful thing, I think, to be able to connect those dots and, and which is why I think the IEA uh, announced policy scenario is probably the most likely. I could be wrong, probably will be wrong, but based on where I am now and the evidence I've gathered, that's what I, I think. And it, it's, it's, I think it's a useful contribution to the conversa conversation. No, I, I, I can't disagree with you. I, I would say that rather than five miles wide, what you're doing is you're flying at 30,000 feet. Yes, fair enough. And that's what I do. Um, uh, now, uh, I guess I did. I started. I tried to write a uh, thesis in economic history. Uh, one of the teachers at MIT at the time was Charles Kindleberger, who wrote a great deal about the history of finance and so on. Great economic historian. He wrote a, a book that's in its fifth edition or sixth edition now, uh, Man's Panics and Crises. It's been picked up by another MIT professor or a professor of Chicago, one of his students. Uh, and it's, it's very important to look at history. And, and so, so I read a lot of history. Uh, I also started, uh, started as, as a model. I had probably the first energy model in the United States. The Department of Energy took it over and was using it in pieces that uh, survived until perhaps 1980. Uh, I gave up a model. Uh, one of the things that you learn is that, you know, I use the econometrics, I use statistics. Building large models is very, it's almost, will almost never get you to where you're going, where you get in, uh, 50 years down the road or 20 years down the road. And the IEA's model is not going to get you. Uh, why? One, uh, Go back to that kind of comment I made. The EIA's model said that we were going to be importing about a third of our natural gas in the United States and a third of our crude oil, maybe half of our crude oil. And that forecast was made in 2008-2009. Uh, we're exporting, and it has to do with tech technical change. You look at the IBM forecasts that were made in the late early 80s and so on as the number of mainframes that we sold. 
Well, like the forecast, the number were sold were about one tenth of the number of mainframes they predicted. It, you know, the importance of technical change, and you can't predict it. I mean, this is, you know, there are these things that happen. The other thing you can't predict is, you know, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin. I mean, what does he do? Uh, and it's, and, you know, globalization was going at great guns until COVID came and everything else. Now it's uh, in retreat, badly in retreat. Uh, so that, you know, it's, this is why the oil companies are going for the short cycle oil. You, you really want to have things that you can turn over and change quickly. And the auto industry, uh, you know, you look at Ford was going to expand its capacity to make the Ford truck, uh, uh, Ford F100 EV. Uh, it, you know, the auto industry is not there yet because their investment takes so long. And this is why a lot of those companies are going to go bankrupt. It is, you know, what's going to happen? Will we get to, uh, will the IEA forecast be, uh, scenarios be right? I don't know. I, you know, first place, I can't look inside their black box. They don't make it uh, apparent. Uh, and that's a fair criticism. But the second thing is uh, they don't have a handle, any better handle on what's going to come down the pike in terms of the new innovations. What's going to come back down to the pike in terms of the weather pattern? I mean, you know, you, you, you know, the IEA is predicating its forecasts on what the climate scientists say. And now the climate scientists are saying, gee, we were wrong. Our models underestimated the speed of the rate at which the wor world's warming. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 you know, one of the things I've always liked is really tiny models that give you kind of a direction at, at 60,000 feet, but that gives you a chance to look these things over. The climate scientists have these models that take on the fastest computers in the world, take three or four hours to solve, which is, which says there's much too much detail in it. And, uh, and some, and invariably when there's a lot of detail in the model, there's some little gremlin in there that's screwing things up. I mean, it's just always. Well, that is fair enough, uh, and uh, I'll uh, your criticism. We'll take your criticism of uh, with with a uh, we'll accept your criticism. Let's put it that way. Now, Phil, let's wrap up our interview here. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, when I last talked to you, you said that uh, oil was a sunset industry. That was eight eight months ago, ten months ago. Is your opinion, has your opinion changed in those 10 months? Uh, if, if anything, the sunset is coming soon. I thought you might say that. <laughs> no, well, I, it, you know, look, 50% of, 50 of oil demand is road transport. The road transportation is being electrified faster than anybody can keep up with, in part because of China. And so that makes perfect sense that that you would think that. Well, it, not just that. I mean, I mean, go back to what I just was talking about about modeling the weather. It looks like the climate scientists have underestimated the speed at which the world's warming, and that is going to lead to all sorts of problems, which essentially is going to probably require us to get off fossil fuels for. And given that, 
then oil is going to be going to have to go away quick. I, I mean, it's it strikes me that the Chinese, while they talk, keep talking about using coal and so on, they're going to build coal plants uh, a little more, and but uh, they're not going. They will shut those plants down and write that capital off, um, or use them as peaker plants, like we use gas plants. Well, I I, I think they'll probably shut them down because they'll okay. shut them down. I, I, I think that they, A, if, in the first place, the Chinese economy is not going to grow very rapidly because they, they have a huge housing problem. That's a, that's a side interest of mine because uh, I've looked at housing, the economics of housing for years. Uh, so they have a problem there. Where they see their growth opportunities is in these renewables and so on. And so I think they're going to, they're going to, they're turning faster and faster towards the renewables. To try to rekindle growth, I don't think they're going to be as successful as they hope, but they're going to try. That's going to happen. Uh, and the Europe now, the question in Europe is, what happens in the next this election this April this spring? Because uh, one of the things I remember from the Carter administration is the truckers and the farmers parking around the White House when they protested. Well, now we're seeing this in France and so on. That's going to that could slow the transition down. Again, political economics. Uh, it's a, yeah. You know, that's why you look three or four years ahead, and the situation is going to be very different. But I, but the trend on the oil side is is clear. It's it's going away, and uh, and it's going to go away faster than than either you or I think. Okay, so you would argue for big, big error bars. Uh, that, that, that's fair enough. But Phil, thank you for this. This has been fascinating. I look forward to, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk before 10 months uh, because I always uh, appreciate your take on this. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's a lot of fun.